line. This episode is part two in a series. Please listen to the prologue before you start this one. This is the story of Jeanette and Danette Milbrook, twins from Augusta, Georgia, who disappeared in 1990 on their walk home from a convenience store. 27 years, and there's still no trace of them. And their case was closed. And why? It depends on who you ask. At the time, the twins' family was told point-blank that it would be closed because they had turned 17. And in the state of Georgia, they couldn't then be forced to return home. Then, later, when they spoke to representatives from NICMEC, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, they were told the case had been closed because the twins had been found. Still later, someone at the sheriff's office told Shantae, the twin sister, that they'd been in foster care and eventually adopted out. And then when the case was reopened in 2013, the Augusta Chronicle quoted an officer Peebles as saying the case had been closed on hearsay, with the implication that the department had been told the twins had been found through some sort of second or third-hand account. No officer claimed on paper to have put eyes on them, especially not the original investigator. So, there's the official record, and then there's the truth. We begin with a problem. The twins' original case file is gone. What happened to it? No one is precisely sure, or if they are, they're not telling. There are two major theories, though, offered by officials at different times. In 2017, the podcast was told that flooding might be the culprit. But also, we were told that the file might have been destroyed. In fact, maybe it was shredded, which is less ominous than it sounds. Not a conspiracy, but the natural conclusion of too many stored files, not enough room, and the joining of two departments with limited space. This was likely not intentional, but it was impactful. To our knowledge, we are the first people to ask for this file. It's an active case, so who knows what's in there. This is Georgia and the laws are strict. When we made our request, we got an incident report two sheets long on each twin. These reports are dated June of 2013, and here's where it gets complicated. This information, though it was collected by the cold case investigator, Ashley Pletcher, who was briefly assigned in 2013, isn't new. It's copied from the original 1990 report, and wasn't that destroyed? We don't know. Perhaps it's somewhere else altogether. After all, the reporting question is specifically listed as a juvenile report, and the specifics of that choice have remained unclear. Sources have told us this was the usual approach for missing persons under the age of 17, but we've also been told that it was standard for runaways. In any case, the trouble starts here. This is the first official document that misnames the twins, who have no S on their last name. That misprint has led to dozens of the same, from newspaper articles to Name Us to the Charlie Project, all of which draw their information from official documents. Jeanette's middle name is Latrice, not Latressa. That error appears in most missing persons listings and the official police report. Understand the story's reconstruction based on memories made fuzzy by 27 years, the scant paperwork, and official stories that change. We'll do our best to walk you through it. If you listened last week, you'll recall that the missing persons in question were 15-year-old twins who needed bus fare. They left their new apartment on Cooney Circle and walked a few miles to their godfathers because he'd promised them bus fare so that they could continue to attend their now out-of-district school. They didn't take anything with them, and why would they? So we begin there in March, the 18th, a Sunday, with the twins. 
The Charlie Project describes them as having scars from hernia operations and Danette as a little bow-legged. The family agrees with this, and they also agree that the twins were dressed as follows. Danette wore a white Mickey Mouse t-shirt, white jeans, and black sneakers. If there was a leader between the two mostly quiet girls, Danette was it. She was quiet but friendly and always ready to defend her sister. That very impulse may have led to some of the confusion surrounding events that preceded the case. Jeanette was a little dressed up that day in a blue pullover, white turtleneck, beige skirt, tights, and sneakers, likely included due to the long walk ahead. Shantae remembers that she hadn't changed after church. Jeanette was friendly, kind, and a homebody. She was not someone to make waves, even when she was picked on at the school bus stop. Danette was the one who put a stop to that. So they left their new apartment, and they headed toward Bethlehem, their old neighborhood. A little under a month out from their 16th birthdays, the girls were old enough to make that walk alone, especially in the 90s. Their mother, Louise, didn't like them walking, but it was better to do once and get the bus fare that would prevent them from 10 trips in the next week. Remember their old neighborhood? It was in an area of town that still held the mark of Augusta's former cotton industry and its current brick industry. Here was also the nearby Mary Brick Brickyards and the Brickyard Ponds and a scattering of fishing spots and twisting dirt roads, kind of the country in the city. Locals went fishing there. Jeanette and Danette found the houses and faces familiar, people they consider friends, probably. And according to their family, the twins would have never taken a ride from a stranger, even after a long and tiring walk. So it would have to be a friend, unless they had no choice. Assuming the twins didn't accept a ride that day, they would have first walked down Forest Street, not Florence, as the incident report lists, where they collected the $20 they'd need for their bus ride. People must have seen them, though no official has ever asked. The incident report acquired from the sheriff's office doesn't tell us about the rest of their journey. But the twins walked on to Ten Cup Lane. We know this because Juanita, their cousin, told us about it. As reported in the last episode, the twins invited Juanita to sleep over, something she did often, though it might be a little unusual for a school night. Juanita got the sense that they wanted some company, and so we have to ask, what happened between Forest Road and Tin Cup Lane? We have to pause here to move a little ways back in time. Not by much, just a few hours. It's still March 18th. It's lunchtime. It's a little moment from that day that may be important, and it may not be, but it's not mentioned in any police report we've been able to obtain. Shantae and Louise were never asked about it. The story goes like this. After church, the pastor gave Louise a few dollars to buy her children lunch. Miles from any grocery store and without a car, their choices were limited. So Louise sent the twins down the road to buy enough church's chicken to feed the children. When Danette and Jeanette returned, they told their mother that they'd been followed by a man in a white van. What does that mean? Was he driving slowly behind them? They said he didn't follow them into the apartment complex. Uh, they didn't say much, really. Shantae remembers that they played it down so much so that she and her mom forgot all about it until we worked to establish an hour-by-hour -hour timeline of that day. So maybe the guy in the van had them on edge. Or maybe they ran into someone else or more than one someone. Back to the afternoon of March 18th, Danette and Jeanette walk on to Pickwood Avenue, just a block or two away from Juanita's house. That's where their eldest sister, Asiander, was staying. The original investigator never spoke to Asiander. That stop at Pickwood Avenue isn't on the report. In fact, 
Asiander didn't have involvement in the investigation until 2013, when they asked her to submit DNA to help them search the system for unidentified victims. March 18th, and now we're off the official record, but we have the family to help us along the way. We know the twins walk from AC Anders home to the pump and shop, which is on the corner of MLK and 12th. We don't know if they stopped anywhere along the way. Miss Gloria, a familiar figure to them, was working the register, and they were thirsty and hungry. They'd walk nearly two hours. But if you had only $25 to fund some runaway scheme, would you spend part of it on chips and soda? Miss Gloria says they seemed happy enough. They knew each other to speak to, but that was all. She did talk to police, though she isn't mentioned by name or anywhere on the publicly accessible reports. We only know this because Shantae and Louise eventually got worried. The twins weren't back by dark, and they never stayed out. Finally, they decided to go looking for them. It was 1990, and no one had cell phones. Few people had pagers. You just had to wait for your children to come home. In the following clip, Shante Sturgis, the twin sister, remembers that night. If you could describe for us the walk that you and your mom took the evening that you realized Jeanette and Danette were missing. The walk we took, we went down Olive Road, going towards Martin Luther King Boulevard. As we was walking, we was also looking in like bushes and trees, you know, different types of little abandoned buildings and stuff like that because we already heard stories about people getting killed and stuff like that. So my mom was like, you know, she was just going to take a look and on our way down, we just kept looking and looking and looking until we made it to the store that they was last seen at. Did you call for them at all? No, we didn't call for them. Because my mom had already talked to my older sister, and my older sister told her that they had left her house going towards the pump and shop store. That was the only reason why we went to pump and shop Mm -hmm. is because she said that's the way they went. So we just went in there because the lady that works there knows my mom, and but she knows us too. So um, we went in there and asked her, had she seen them? Did they come in there? And she said yes. And she told my mom exactly what they came in there and brought. And she said once they left out of the store, she didn't see if they got in the car with somebody or what direction they went. She said she just glanced away for a second and looked up and they was gone. We just kept looking and, you know, like on the side of buildings and stuff like that and in different like little areas where you see a whole bunch of trees and bushes and stuff. We looked in those areas and didn't see anything. And then after you spoke to Gloria at the gas station is when you came back home and called the police. Yes, when we um, left from talking to Miss Gloria, we made our way back home. And on our way back home, we kept looking in different areas that we didn't look on our way going down. So by the time we made it home, we called, you know, Richmond County and... They told my mom that she had to wait 24 hours to report them missing if they hadn't came back by the next day to call them back, which she did. And when she called them back, you know, she gave them a description of everything they had on that day. And that was it. And we had nothing else until probably that next week when they sent the investigator out to talk to her 
about their case, you know, about them missing. So Louise and Shantae began a back-and-forth process that would drag on for 27 years. Louise waited, Louise called back, and eventually a beat cop showed up and took a report. We think the case file that we have now is based on that single report, with the misspelled names, the wrong streets, the missing characters, the inaccurate order of events. It was another week before the original investigator came by their place. As he told us a few weeks ago via phone, they were always considered runaways. After all, there were 70 a month in Augusta. And as our May 15th, 2017 phone call with him, the original investigator says it was then handed off to a juvenile investigator, now deceased, who closed it. And here's where things get tricky. We don't think that's actually the case. The juvenile officer, Mr. Westbrook, is the same person who, after the case was closed, told Louise he was going to help her look for the twins. During our phone call, the original investigator implied that the juvenile officer Westbrook had found the girls, but that is simply not the case. Stress, sleep, recovery, whether we're in the gym or at work, these things shape how we perform. One thing we've both added to our daily routine, and it's helped make a noticeable difference for us, is NuCalm. Brooke told me about her NuCalm experience this week. She's been using it while her baby naps, so for her, the 50-minute reboot session is perfect. It's a little time she can carve out of her day to relax, de-stress, and, well, reboot. By the time the baby's awake, Brooke feels refreshed and ready for the rest of her day, too. It's imperative to your health and happiness to be able to manage stress and not be managed by it. New Calm gives you the power and control to relax and recharge anywhere, anytime. Own the day with New Calm. New Calm is the only stress management system of its kind, clinically proven in over 1 million sessions to improve your sleep, reduce your stress, and boost your recovery without drugs and side effects. The new Calm system uses cutting-edge neuroscience and consists of three non-invasive and non-pharmaceutical items, all of which are included in your monthly subscription that costs less than a daily cup of coffee. The whole process is easy to use and to work into your daily routine to achieve better sleep, reduction in stress, and boost in recovery. Do what we did. Own the day with NuCalm. We have a special link set up specifically for our listeners. Go to fallnewcalm.com and get 50% off your 30-day subscription of NuCalm and their money-back guarantee. That's fall, N-U-C-A-L-M.com. Fall, N-U-C-A-L-M.com. The next year brought very little. No leads, no news articles, no coverage. The family just waited. Their church members helped them distribute flyers, and Nick Mac made them some posters. They trusted Richmond County would look for Danette and Jeanette. And so when that investigator showed back up on or about April 8th in 1991, Louise opened the door hoping for news. Here, Shantae recalls what he said. The detective came and told my mom that they had closed the case out. So my mom called the missing and explored children and talked to them. And when she called down there, they told her that the original investigator who was over their case told them that they had been found, that they could take them out of the system. And my mom was like, no, they haven't been found. But they said 
where there's nothing they can do unless the investigator tell them otherwise. So for the last 20-something years, they was taken out of the database with the missing and explored children and the database as um, missing kids in Richmond County. Can you also recall, it seemed like when we spoke with your mom, she said that she believed the original investigator was coming to her house because he had found them. Yeah, she said she was... She believed that that's what he was coming there for to tell her that they had been found, but he came there to tell her that they closed the case out. And when your mom recalled that, she said that what he said, according to your mom, was that he was closing the case because they had turned 17 and there was yeah. nothing he could do. They had turned 17. He told her they had turned 17 years old and there was nothing um, that he could do to make them come home, even if he did find them. Had he always told your family he had found them and that's why he was closing the case? Or was the original declaration that the case had to be closed due to their age and then it was later on that you all started hearing things that he was indicating that they had somehow been found? Yeah, we found that after they closed the case out now. Um, we didn't find out until later that he was saying that they had been found. He never exactly told my mom, oh, your girls have been found. He just told her that they had turned 17 years old and there was nothing that he could do, even if he did find them because they were 17. So sometime after they closed the case out, we started hearing them saying that they had been found is what they told the people at Missing Sport Children, I think that's how we originally found out that he was saying they hadn't been found, but they hadn't been found. When you all heard that, were you feeling hopeful? We was feeling hopeful, but we already know they hadn't been found because he never told my mom where. He never said, oh, but they hadn't been found here or there. He didn't tell her anything. He just, She just heard from the Missing Sport Children that they was told that my sister name had been found, which they had. So was your mom ever able to ask in person the original investigator what their location was? No. She Well, she did ask him where did they find him. She, he said that he couldn't tell her where they had been found. Only thing he know is that they had been located and that they couldn't make them come back home. And so... She attempted to get some kind of a physical... Right, because I would want to know, if you're going to come and tell me my girls had been found after a year or so had them passed by, you got to come tell me where. And if they want to make that decision to tell me that they don't want to come back home, let me be there for them to tell me that. That's how I feel about the thing. They didn't give her that chance. They didn't give her a chance to say, okay, well... They've been found at this address, ma'am. If you want to go talk to them or whatever the case may be, then, you know, you talk to your girls and see if you can get your girls to come home or whatever. They didn't give her that chance. They didn't never tell her where they had been found or where they had been seen. Nothing. So your mom was trying to get them to give her some kind of right. address. Or- some kind of address or what area or who house they was at. But they never did tell her anything. Just they had them close the case out and saying that they had been found, but it was never found. 
We can't prove that the family story is true. But it was enough for Sheriff Richard Roundtree to declare in 2013 that a terrible injustice had been done and to reopen the case. And yet, we have been told twice that such a thing couldn't have happened, that a missing children's case would never be closed without those children being found. But here's the thing. The original investigator says that they were. How many of the events in this case sprang from that one decision? How many people might have remembered something that could have helped? People still talk to Shantae and ask her how the twins are doing. They, like everyone else, assume they'd been found. We spoke to Robert Lowry of NCMEC, who verified that the case had been removed from their database in 1993, two years after Richmond County officially closed it. People have a hard time believing that. They think that the center would never remove children, especially if the family contested that removal. All we can say is, it happened. Nick Mech says it did. When my co-host interviewed Robert Lowry, he was holding the piece of paper that proved it in his hands. He said, and I quote, It seems that they apparently have been removed, so therefore we canceled our report here at the National Center based on that report, which was obviously incorrect. End quote. And what about the alleged refusal to add them back to the system? That was before Lowry's time, so he could only speculate. But Louise tells us when she called to complain, Nick Mick contacted Richmond County again, and they once again verified that the twins had been located, based off the original investigator's report. It comes down to who to believe, and it's fair to say that, in this case, Nick Mick did not choose the parents. We are not here to negate the good that they do, and they do plenty. But this happened, and telling Shantae and Louise that it didn't is doing a disservice not only to Danette and Jeanette, but to the families of missing all over the country. So, back to March 18th of 1990. What else was happening in Augusta? There was plenty, and not all of it was good. We don't know what he was doing that day, but there was a man living on the 400 block of East Hale Street, a man who had already begun a stream of violent sexual assaults and alleged murders that ran right through the neighborhood the twins walked that day. Joseph Patrick Washington, who was an employee of Marybrook Brickyard, had begun kidnapping women as early as, investigators suspect, 1989, and right off the streets of Bethlehem and the surrounding areas. He drove at least three different cars full of evidence— and some of that evidence was collected by the GBI in 1994. But the twins' case was closed then. We know that he targeted black women with short hair and that some of his victims were left at the brickyard ponds. Some survived to tell the story of these attacks. Is there any connection? We don't know. But someone should have asked the question before now. A map of his crimes crisscrossed the area walked by the twins that Sunday. So many people were never interviewed. Like the twins' father, for instance, who also lived on East Hale, and whose history of violence makes him someone who should have been questioned thoroughly. As the twins' cousin Yolanda has told us again and again, someone knows something. It's time to shake them out. <laughs> 